0: Well, I want to thank you for many of your prayers. I had uh, knee replacement surgery uh, just a little over a month ago. I'm doing well, I'm walking, but I'm going to try to sit because that's what I'm supposed to do. <laughs> You're clapping because I'm sitting in a chair. If someone have a stick of gum, let's see if I can sit in a chair and chew gum at the same time. What's really important is that today, especially today, but every day, we as the followers of Jesus Christ ought to be celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ and applying the resurrection of Jesus Christ to every aspect of our life. Now, for honest, we have to know that if the resurrection of Jesus Christ did not happen, as described by the passage we just read in Mark, well, the Apostle Paul, who was an early leader of Christianity, said that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, that our faith is futile. We're still in our sins, and that we, as the followers of Jesus, are to be pitied above all people. And so since the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most important fact of Christianity, it's the penultimate, it's the apex of our faith, it's, it's the centerpiece of everything that we believe. I think it's important for us, as we take a look at Mark 16:1 through 8, is to ask and answer three important questions this morning. The first question that we will ask and answer is this. Is there any legitimate historical evidence and are there good reasons to believe that the resurrection of Jesus happened as described in Mark 16? Can we trust the history we've just read? That's the first question. There's a second question that's also important. is what does the resurrection of Jesus mean for for us today? And third, is how should you and I, how should we respond to the resurrected Jesus? Those are the three questions we're going to ask and answer. Let's look at the first question. Is there legitimate evidence? Are there good reasons to, to believe that the resurrection of Jesus happened just as Mark 16, 1 through 8, describes? Well, I think the first thing we realize when we look at verse 1 of Mark 16 is when the Sabbath was passed... Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James and Siloam brought spices so that they might go and anoint him, that they might go and anoint Jesus. Most all New Testament scholars, whether or not they believe in the resurrection of Jesus, would say it is historically verifiable that Jesus did live and Jesus did die by crucifixion. And you can't have a resurrection unless you have a death. There's got to be a dead body before you can have a resurrection. And the evidence from the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and extra-biblical uh, you know, uh, sources indicate we can be very confident that there was a man named Jesus who actually lived and died. In Mark 15, 47, just uh, above the section that we just read, it says, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. These women had seen where the body of Jesus had been placed. They came to anoint him with spices, believing they were going to anoint a dead body. They weren't embalming him per se. They were anointing him with spices to sort of eradicate the smell that would come from decomposition. Now here's the the, the real... Uh, sort of, as you try to put the facts of the, the eyewitness accounts of the resurrection together, it's very unlikely that the founders of Christianity would have invented a story like the death of Jesus for its Messiah, particularly Jewish people. Bart Ehrman, who's an agnostic, okay, who doesn't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, says this, it is hard today to understand just how offensive the idea of a crucified Messiah would have been to most first century Jews. Since no one would have made up the idea of a crucified Messiah, Jesus must really have existed, and he must really have raised Messianic expectations, and he must really have been crucified. We can be confident, from the historical evidence doing normal historiography as any secular historian would do to a past event, that we know that Jesus actually lived, and he died, and he was crucified. But there's a second piece of of evidence to suggest to us that what we read in Mark 16 is truly real history, and that is every gospel, including Mark, reports that it is the women who are the first eyewitnesses of the empty tomb. It would be terribly unlikely for someone in the first century to make up a story of the empty tomb in order to create a new religion. And to create a new religious movement where the resurrection of Jesus is the central piece of that new religious movement, and have the first eyewitnesses of that empty tomb being women, not in the first century. In first century Palestine, a woman's testimony would not have been given legitimacy in a court of law. Having women be the first eyewitnesses of the most important uh, uh, event in the history of Christianity, mainly the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the empty tomb, shows the dignity with which Christianity views women. ...but also gives credible evidence that the account in Mark 16, 1 through 8 actually happened. No other explanation explains the evidence well at all. Third, it's clear from Mark 16 that the women did not expect Jesus to be alive. Let's look at the text. Verse 2, and very early, on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, the women... And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? These followers of Jesus had had been with Jesus at his crucifixion. They had seen where his body had been buried. And as they're on the way to the tomb, they are not saying to themselves, well, I can't wait to see the resurrected Jesus. They are bringing spices to put spices on a dead body, the dead body of Jesus. They expected Jesus to be dead. In fact, they're talking amongst themselves. They didn't know how they would be able to roll away the stone that had covered the entrance to the tomb. Now, while all these women lived 2,000 years ago, they knew when someone was dead. I think we have a lot of intellectual or historical snobbery about anyone who lived you know, 50 years ago, or 100 years ago, or 1,000 years ago, and we say, you know, if you you don't have an iPhone, you must be ignorant. They knew when people were dead. They saw him die, they saw him put in the tomb. They were not expecting that. In fact, while most Jewish people in the first century would have believed in a future resurrection for all people, Nobody in first century Palestine, no Jewish person then would have believed there would be a resurrection in the middle of time. And so there was no expectation that Jesus would be alive. And this in spite of the fact that Jesus actually told his followers on three occasions in the book of Mark that he would die and rise again, his followers clearly did not get this. In fact, they didn't even get the fact that he would die. Peter actually argues with Jesus when Jesus says, I'm going to die and rise again. And certainly, they missed the point that the Messiah would have to die, but they clearly missed the point that Jesus would rise again. They did not expect that, and therefore, it would be massively unlikely that some forger or some uh, dishonest person would try to invent this new religion by inventing a story of a resurrection when that idea would have never occurred to a first-century Jewish person at all. And of course, uh, this reminds me of, of, of uh, things I've believed. Uh, my, my, my mom's parents, my grandparents, and I'll, I'll talk to them in heaven one day about this, they worked overtime to try to get me to believe in Santa Claus. They prepped me the week before Christmas as they were at their house. They told me that Santa Claus would only come and bring presents to good boys. and They kind of indicated that I might not get too many presents. They weren't abusive. It's my childhood. It toughened me up. But they told me that, 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 that I would know that Santa Claus would come because they were going to leave a cookie out for him and they were going to leave a glass of milk. And I would see on Christmas morning that the cookie had been partially eaten and the milk had been partially consumed. My uncle, who was only seven years older than me, would tell me when I was four, five, six years old, he would look out the window of my grandparents' home in in the bedroom there, and he says, you better get to sleep. Look at that red light uh, blinking out out there in the dark. Of course, it was a radio tower, a television tower. He said, that's Rudolph. He's coming. And if you don't get to sleep, he's not going to stop and leave you a present. And then they prepped me to expect that Santa would come and the next morning, guess what? The cookie was partially eaten, the milk was partially consumed, and I had presents. And I believed. That's not what happened with the earliest followers of Jesus. They were not prepped. They they were not prepped to to sort of have this experience where they they wanted to believe in the resurrection so bad they invented it in their minds. No, they didn't expect it. The women are coming to put spices on a dead body. The disciples are in a room huddled up, scared to death that either the Jewish authorities or the Roman authorities are gonna come and do to them what they had just done to Jesus. And when we read the other gospel accounts, none of the disciples and none of the women go, oh yeah, I knew you were going to do that. They can't believe it. Why? Because they knew dead people don't come back to life. And they didn't expect it. And so you see, it even the followers of Jesus, these women, look what happens to them when they hear the news that the tomb is empty and that Jesus is risen. Verse 4, And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. Entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, "Do, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out. And fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. This is not the reactions of people who expected and had been primed to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. And they made up something in their minds. These are people who are massively shocked to hear the news that Jesus is not here. He is alive. Furthermore. Furthermore. Why would some forger describe the earliest followers of Jesus, the key leaders of the the new Jesus movement, the women who came to the tomb, the men who are huddled up in fear in a room, scared that the Jewish authorities and the Roman authorities are coming after them. Why would someone make the earliest leaders of the Jesus movement look so spiritually dense and unable to understand? unless that is exactly what happened. One more evidence. The fourth piece of evidence is from this text. There are many others, but nearly all of the followers of Jesus, the earliest followers of Jesus, particularly the 11 disciples, will actually die for their belief. We know this from church history. They will die for their belief in the resurrection of Jesus. Yet initially, they do not anticipate that Jesus was raised from the dead, and they all have trouble believing the resurrection, even when Jesus will appear to them. Yet nearly all of them will suffer and die for their eventual unshakable faith in the resurrection of Jesus. Now, it's true. People die for things that are, are not true. People die for lies all the time, but... Most of the people who die for a lie do not die for a lie that they personally can understand as false. They die for a lie that someone told them. They die for some story that they've heard and they believed. But they had no way to personally verify whether that lie that they believed that leads them to martyrdom was true or not. Yet, that's not true of the disciples. They would personally know if Jesus rose from the dead. And rarely will an entire group of people lay down their lives all together in conspiracy for something they know personally is not true. But that's exactly what happened to the disciples. We could go on and on about the historical uh, confidence that we can have in this event. It's true. You can't prove scientifically that the resurrection happened. Historical proof for an event in the past it cannot be scientifically proved. Yet, given the significant amount of historical evidence that we possess, the Beck's explanation for all the evidence we have... The accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The extra biblical sources of information that we have. All of them appear to be giving us actual history. And while the resurrection requires faith, certainly it, is not require, it does not require blind faith. God has left us with historical accounts that we can examine and think about. We can be sure that there is plenty of credible evidence. Our faith is grounded in a reasonable historiography, which any secular historian would apply to any event from the past. We can have confidence that the text we just read a few minutes ago is actually true history. And so that's the answer to our first question Do we have evidence to believe that the resurrection actually happened? But our second question is this, what does the resurrection mean for us today? I want to sketch out two important meanings. There are many others, but I want to sketch out two from you. And the first meaning of the resurrection is this, no moral failure, no sin in your life can prevent you from having a vibrant personal relationship with a holy and righteous God. Notice what the text says. In verse 7, the angel there, it's described as a man, but it's an angel, says, Go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Then you will see him just as he told you. What's interesting about this is that the angel tells the women, You need to go tell the disciples to meet Jesus in Galilee, which he had foretold to them in the gospel that they know about. Mark records that in his gospel. And yet, he mentions Peter specifically. Why does the angel mention Peter specifically? Now, we know a lot about Peter from Mark's gospel. In fact, many uh, historians would say that Mark uses Peter as one of his main sources of information to put together his book. So why does the, the angel tell the women, you know, make sure and tell Peter to... To be with the disciples. Well, Peter was one of the most outspoken followers of Jesus Christ. In Mark 8. And Jesus is is asking the disciples, who do do you think I am? And Peter declares boldly, you're the Messiah. You're the the Messiah. You're the one promised in the Old Testament. And, and, And Jesus affirms Peter and says, great answer. And then Jesus says, but I first must die and rise again. And then Peter rebukes Jesus and says, no, you're not going to die, and Jesus says, "Yes, I am. Peter is rebuked by Jesus. Peter understands that Jesus is the Messiah, well done, but he doesn't understand that the Messiah must die and rise again. Later in Mark 14, towards the end of Mark's uh, gospel, Jesus tells his disciples in the upper room there as he's celebrating Passover with them that the, 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 the shepherd, Jesus, is going to be struck and the sheep will scatter and, and all of you will fall away from me. And Peter says, these other guys might fall away from me, but I will be with you to the end. Peter's an extrovert. Overconfident. Overconfident. And even though Jesus warns Peter that you are going to deny me three times. Peter believes that he will be the only disciple left standing with Jesus. And yet when Jesus is arrested. Peter follows at a distance when he's being taken back and forth as different tribunals meet over the fate of Jesus. It's a kangaroo court that condemns Jesus to death. Peter will not stand with Jesus. He will spectacularly fail by denying that he even knew Jesus on three different occasions. Three different people will come up to Peter and say, Hey, you you were with Jesus, weren't you? And he goes, I never knew him. (laughs) Jesus, who's that? In fact, at one point, Peter calls down curses upon himself, and some commentators believe he's actually calling down curses on Jesus. This is a catastrophic failure. This is a catastrophic uh, moral failure of immense, uh, 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 it's it's just incredible. And yet, what does the angel tell the women? Tell the disciples, I'm going to meet you in Galilee and make sure you tell Peter. What does this mean? It means that there is no failure in your life or mine that is too big that can't be dealt with through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. It means that nothing in your past, and nothing in your present, or nothing in your future, if you know Jesus, if you put your faith and confidence in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the resurrection is bigger than your failures. Amen? Turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to see another passage that buttresses this idea this is 1st corinthians 15 verses 3 through 5 3 and 4 in this section of scripture paul is describing an early tradition the story of jesus's death and resurrection 1st corinthians 15:3 says for i delivered to you as of first importance what i also Received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. What's amazing about this particular text of scripture is Paul received this tradition. And many scholars believe Paul received this tradition as early as 36 AD. Just three years after the death and resurrection of Jesus. And it says that Christ died for our sins. And then it says he rose on the third day. And it's course fascinating that Paul, who is the one who is writing and recording this tradition for us, was a man who hated Christianity initially. He hated the idea that there would be a Messiah who would die and rise again. He actually imprisoned followers of Jesus. He, he participated in the martyrdom of Stephen. And yet when Paul is confronted with the resurrected and ascended Jesus on the road to Damascus, where he was trying to imprison more followers of Jesus he comes completely around and begins to put his faith and confidence in the death and resurrection of Jesus and here's my fear for us my fear for, for for a number of us in this room including myself and so while on Easter Sunday we boldly proclaim he is risen indeed we believe in the resurrection I think it's probably safe to say that there are times in all of our lives when we struggle to apply the resurrection to our own sin and shame. I can't tell you how many believers I've met who struggle to believe that the resurrection of Jesus has fully dealt with their moral failures and sins. And when we fail to apply the resurrection to our failures, when we fail to believe that what Jesus did for Peter in his failure is what he can do for us, we are not applying the resurrection of Jesus, and it cripples our ability to walk with Christ. I know people, and I would have to say myself, a lot of us make an attempt to make up for our moral failures by working harder in other areas of our life. Remember talking to one, but this is just representative of one of many people. There's a person in a, in, a, in a church that I was involved with before who was massively involved in the church. They were at everything. They visited people in the hospital, they had a nursing home ministry, they taught Sunday school, they were involved so much. And one day, because of a tragedy in their own uh, uh, family, came to me and said, I am on a treadmill. Doing all of this ministry because I'm trying to overcome the massive moral failures from when I lived recklessly before I trusted Christ. I'm trying to earn my way with God, and it's actually driving me crazy. And I think a number of us try to do the very same thing. We become workaholics at work. We are perfectionistic in our parenting. We overschedule. Some of us never have a quiet moment in our life because in those quiet moments we were reminded of something in our past or some present struggle and those voices in our minds begin to tell us how can you claim to be a follower of Jesus when you did that or when you're struggling with this again. And what we end up doing is try to overcome our failures and our sin in our own strength rather than trust Jesus His death and resurrection. God's word is clear. There is therefore now no condemnation. For those who are in Jesus Christ. And if we apply the resurrection. To our moral failings. And our present struggles. And our future struggles with sin. That will take place. That is not going to cause us. To take sin less seriously. Oh no. You apply the resurrection of of Jesus to your sin. You will see how. Clearly, God takes your sin seriously. He sent his son all the way out of heaven to die and pay the price for your sin. What happens when you apply the resurrection to your sin is that you will be more quick to confess your sin to God. You will be more quick to repent of your sin. You will be more quick to confess your sin to others you have hurt because you know that your sin has been swallowed up in the resurrection of Jesus. I remember talking to a couple Uh, they were applying to to work in a Christian organization they were going through the interview process they were a great couple and one of the questions they were asked by the organization was is there anything in your present or in your past that would disqualify you from serving Christ with us And I think the the organization was trying to find out were they involved in a present sin that they needed to deal with or did they have some unresolved conflict that needed to be dealt with? And the couple responded, particularly the wife responded, who had lived about a decade before that interview a fairly reckless moral life before she came to Christ. She answered, Everything that would disqualify disqualify me from serving Christ has been paid in in full to the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that's right. But I also get concerned, uh, for those of you here, and, and maybe you haven't made up your mind about the resurrection. Maybe you haven't really put your faith and confidence in Jesus. We're so glad you're with us. We feel honored and privileged that you would come. But the same danger applies to you as well. I have met more than a few people who I've been in dialogue with about Jesus, sharing the gospel with them. And they've told me, I'd love to trust Jesus, but there's no way God would ever accept me after all the things I've done. And that's just not true. If the resurrection of Jesus can restore Peter, he can restore you, no matter what you've done. And allow you to have a personal relationship with a holy and righteous God, because the resurrection is bigger than any failure you may have and sin you may have committed. That's the first meaning of the resurrection: no moral failure, no sin, is bigger than the power of the resurrection. But there's a second meaning of the resurrection, and that is, is that Jesus has defeated death. I don't want to spoil your Easter morning. But if we were to be honest with ourselves today, all of us in this room, the longer you live, you are going to experience a greater and greater amount of death. It's inescapable. And yet it's often in our culture, particularly in North American culture, we don't even want to think about death, we don't even want to talk about death. I... um Oh, about 25 years ago, I read this amazing book. It's not necessarily written by a believer. It's called The Undertaking. Those of you who are melancholic will love this book. It's called The Undertaking Life Studies from the Dismal Trade, written by Thomas Lynch. Thomas Lynch is a mortician, he sees death all the time. He's also a poet. Thomas Lynch, even 20 or 30 years ago, talked about as a funeral director, as someone who would uh, put in a grave uh, 300 to 400 of the people who lived in his city every year, simply pointed out in the book that people, as he observed, were more and more uncomfortable and more and more unlikely to think about death at all. You see, it wasn't that long ago, as he described, it wasn't that long ago in North America that you were often born, married, and your funeral was done in the same room of your house. In fact, before a lot of funeral homes got started, you know, a hundred years ago or so, you, you would be laid out in the living room when you passed away, and all of your family and all of your friends, and even young children, would observe the dead body over and over again. Death was part of the currency of life not that long ago. And Thomas Lynch goes on to say that now with the advent of the funeral home, in his experience, people are more and more distant from death. They never see the dead body. They never are confronted with death. In fact, he would say that more and more people, even 30 years ago, were not even having funerals because they didn't want to have to deal with that experience. Yet. It's the writer of Ecclesiastes in the Bible. It says it is better to go to the house of mourning. Than to go to a house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind. And living, and the living will take it to heart. In our present day. Even funerals are happening less and less. And so we have more and more people. Who do not take death. Their own death to heart. And we are the worse for it. Furthermore, it's not your own death that you have to be concerned about. My grandfather, he lived until he was 102 years old. And he was in pretty good health up until the very last week of his life. And I know a lot of people said, Oh, isn't that wonderful that your grandfather lived that long? Well, it was was wonderful to have him. But it wasn't so wonderful for him. In his 80s and in his 90s, My grandfather would bury almost every single member of his family. All of his siblings, his mom and dad, all of his cousins, all of his uh, relatives. He would bury every single person he ever worked with. All of his closest friends he would have to say goodbye to. And that weighed on him. Separation after separation from loved ones, and from co-workers over and over and over and over again. Until there was hardly anyone who knew him personally, who grew up with my grandfather who was at his funeral because they had all passed before. And let me just make matters worse. It's not just our bodies that are going to decay and die, and it's not just our friends and family and loved ones. The physical universe is on its way out. It's wonderful being in a church with so many scientists. I did some research this week and then I tried out this illustration on two different astrophysicists who go to our church. And they claim that this is pretty accurate, what I'm about to say. Based on the observation we have of other stars, like our Sun, the most we have left is about four billion years. But the reality is, based on what some of the observations happening in the sun even today, they may think, some scientists think we don't even have four billion years left. And when our sun begins to run out of fuel, the sun is going to expand. At least that's the theory. That's the model. That's what we've seen with other stars. And Mercury and Venus, for sure, are going to be sucked into that sun and the sun will be so large that the the earth will all the water on the earth will will be burned up nothing will be able to live on the planet life will cease to exist on planet earth nothing will be there and the project that we are all engaged in in living on this earth and trying to make it better Unless God intervenes, this project that we're all working on is going to end in a colossal, gigantic catastrophe. Without an intervention of God, this universe and all that we are doing on earth today is like rearranging the decks on the Titanic, rearranging the chairs on the deck of the Titanic. Happy Easter. But the beauty and glory and hope of the resurrection is that death has been defeated by Jesus Christ himself. Turn back to 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 54, talking about our future resurrection based on the resurrection of Jesus, says this. Verse 54, 1 Corinthians 15. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, there's hope for you for those of you who have trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus you will have life after life after death you will be reunited with a new body that will be perfect no need for knee replacement surgery in heaven thankfully I hate to say it, my, the doctor who operated in me was a, is a believer in Jesus Christ but I hated him for two weeks after the surgery and I had to confess sin because he's a brother in Christ. I like him better now. We will be reunited with our, our soul and we will be in a bodies that will never decay ever again. And again, it's not simply that we, our bodies will be resurrected. We will be in a, a, a world that has been redeemed. The physical universe will be, in some sense, resurrected, as it were. It will be restored not only to its former glory, but even greater. And that new kingdom, that new creation that Jesus has brought into the world through the resurrection will explode and envelop the universe so that those of us who know Christ, we will be alive with new bodies, but we will live in a world where there is no sin, no death, no sickness, no separations. Where there'll be no injustice and, and love and a harmony of love. And we'll never have to say goodbye to any loved one again. Amen. And again, I think we believe that. At least you sounded like you believed it. I saw a lot of you say he is risen in today. Indeed. I saw you saying Christ the Lord is risen today. But do you believe it every day of the year? I think it's pretty obvious to should be obvious to you there are many people in this country and I fear too many people in this room who are utterly disconsolate concerning the condition of the world I get that that's understandable in one sense but if you believe in the resurrection it's not understandable If we truly allow the resurrection of Jesus to shape our focus and perspective, we can never be undone with the condition of the world, nor can we be undone with our physical condition. Why? Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ means that death does not have the final say. New life is going to come to us and to our world. Hope is not lost. And while certainly it's appropriate to grieve at at, at a funeral, and and certainly you you can't read the news these days and not feel a little bit, uh, you know, concerned. But you should not have, you should not have Jesus has defeated death in his resurrection and therefore we can face any challenge because we know that new life, restoration, the new creation of God has already entered our world in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and one day soon, it's going to envelop the entire universe. When Denise and I were... um, when I was in seminary, uh, Denise was in seminary for a bit too, um, we lived in Dallas, Dallas Texas, and um, we lived in back of a, of, a, of a mansion. It was a large home, and we lived in the garage apartment out back, and because we did some child care and did some chores, we got free rent. And when you're in seminary, that free rent is wonderful. And about after a year, we had been with the family and really grown close to the family and to the children in particular um, Unfortunately the father Hugo and, his, uh, and three of his friends were flying back from a, a Christian conference and uh, Hugo was the pilot of the plane and they, uh, the plane crashed in the mountains I think in Wyoming and uh, all, all of them perished and it was just tragic. He left two young boys, a wife, uh, but he was a believer And over the weeks after his death and and tragic death um, uh, one of my assignments one day was to to move around copies of the will that he had had worked on before he died. And and, 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 you know God had blessed them with a lot of of money so the will was pretty long, there was lots of (laughs) disbursements. and everything and and at one point I I, I was putting some of the copies where they were supposed to go and, and, and the will fell open, one copy of the will fell open, I saw the last page. And on the last page Hugo was giving some advice on maybe what they should do with some of the properties that they owned and how to divest themselves of all that. Express his love for his family because obviously this was a document he did in anticipation that he would die. And then the very last line, it just kills me. He said, see you soon. I'll see you soon. Yes, his death was tragic. Of course it was. We wept. But Hugo knew Christ. And he knew the resurrection of Christ. And while he worked on a document that assumed he would die before his wife and before his children, his last words to his family was, See you soon. My life is not over. I will have life after life after death and I will be with you forever and it's going to be very soon. Do you have that kind of hope? Do you kind of have that hope when you see the news and while you may grieve over it a little bit realize this is not the way the story ends? And that's the second meaning of the resurrection, that Jesus Christ has defeated death decisively for us. And for those of us who put our confidence in the death and resurrection of Jesus, we know that we will have life after life after death. We know that our loved ones who know Christ will have life after life, life after life after death. And we will know that one day the new creation will envelop the universe and we will live in a world that will last forever. That will be amazing pure godly righteous just merciful when no sin no sickness and no separations will ever invade us again because death will be completely and utterly stopped and destroyed because jesus died and rose again which leads us to our last question what should we do with the resurrected jesus i'm going to talk to two groups of people this morning For those of you who have already have a faith and confidence in Jesus who died and rose again, I'm going to suggest a little assignment for you. I know you didn't come on Easter morning to get an assignment, but I'm going to give you an assignment. I'm suggesting that from today until Pentecost Sunday, which is May 28th, let me suggest you spend every day reading the following. These are my suggestions. In the morning, read one of the gospel accounts of the resurrection and switch it up every day to orient your day to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Around the middle of the day, take 1 Corinthians 15, which is an expanded commentary on the resurrection. Gives you the theological sort of basis and meaning of the resurrection in a pretty significant way. Read 1 Corinthians 15. And at the end of the day, read Revelation 21 and 22 to remind you of where God's new creation introduced at the resurrection of Jesus is taking not only you after death, but where God is taking the entire physical universe. And just maybe, when you hear those voices in your head that are reminding you of your past failures or your present struggles with sin, Apply the resurrection to it. I wanted to ask all of you not to look at the news for 50 days. But you're going to watch. I know you will. But maybe when you read the news and you read some new horrific story. Apply the resurrection to that difficult story. And remind yourself of where the new creation power of God in Jesus is taking you and the world. That's one way to respond to the resurrection of Jesus. I want to talk also to another group of people who might be here this morning. Some of you may be here and you have not made up your mind about Jesus. You're not sure. And that's great. I'm glad you're here. Thank you. It's a privilege and an honor that you would come. I want to offer something to you. If you would like to enter into a dialogue about Jesus, there's plenty of people in this church who would love to sit down with you and discuss and listen to all of your questions. And we don't care how cynical your questions are, how skeptical they may be. We also have some resources that we could point you to that would help you explore this further. You could email us at infostonehillprinceton.org. You can fill out a welcome card at the Welcome Center and just say, I'd like the resources about the resurrection. And actually, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be out in the atrium, sitting down, <laughs> maybe with ice on my knee. But I'll be out there. There are other church leaders. We'd love to talk with you. Because the reality is, many of us w- w- have been right where you are, wondering, the resurrection of Jesus, really? <laughs> I mean, come on. And God has helped us to understand it, to believe it, and to apply it. Let's pray together. Dear Father in Jesus, I want to thank you for your word that shows us what you really, what really happened on Easter morning. That you really lived and you died and you rose again. I thank you, Lord, that in your word you show us that Peter's massive failure was not bigger than the resurrection and neither are our moral failures and our present struggles or even our future struggles. None of it is too big for you not to deal with. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Help us to believe it and apply it. I also pray that you would help us to believe and act knowing that Your death and resurrection has defeated death for all time. Not only our death, but the death of everyone we love, but also the death of the physical universe that's inescapable. Your new creation has entered in. And one day will envelop all of us into this incredible remade world. All by the power of your resurrection. And we will enjoy you forever. Never having to say goodbye to anyone else. In a world free from sin, sickness, death. And all the things that make life so difficult here and now. Lord, for those in this room who are, who are uh, considering exploring Jesus. Lord, I pray that they would take the next step. Send an email or, or talk to one of the leaders. Or fill out a welcome card so we can, we can dialogue. And that maybe, by God's grace, he, he would open up your mind. And you would see the beauty, the glory of the resurrected Jesus. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.